Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. But we are talking this morning about legacy, which I think that's a fitting start in many ways. We're talking about legacy and the way that the stories that we have in our life are made up of the decisions that you and I make in our day-to-day life. And I don't know about you, but I love to tell a good story, don't you? Stories are an amazing, amazing way to communicate information. In the ancient world, stories were the primary way of communicating information, passing it down to the generations you sat around and listened to the elders teach you about the things of the world and truth and wisdom. You didn't read about it, you heard about it. And so stories are such a significant part, I believe, of who we are as human beings, that we're able to tell stories to one another. And stories can be powerful, can't they? They can evoke emotion. They can take us back to moments in time through memory, that, we, that have been lost to us. I mean, in these recent weeks, we've celebrated the life of a number of the members of our congregation that have, have died and gone to be with our Heavenly Father. And in those moments, we listen to their stories as we celebrate their life. Stories lost to time, if not for... Or memories lost to time, if not for the stories that are shared quite acutely during a time of remembrance. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning is we're going to look at the way that our choices shape our life story. Because whether we like it or not, the the choices that you and I make, and we might have never thought about this before, but the stories that you and I, the choices you and I make in our day-to-day life form a story that ultimately is one that we get to tell later on down the road. And For many of us, it's a story that others may well tell on our behalf when our time on this earth is finished. Or if we're really lucky, someone might tell it on our behalf because it's such an amazing story, even while we're on this earth. So a story that I love to tell is a story um, of Eloise's and my um, honeymoon. So I won't give you all the details, obviously, but our honeymoon, we went on um, on a cruise, and we went to a cruise out at the Pacific Islands. So the, the cruise was out of Brisbane, headed to uh, Vanuatu, Fiji, New Caledonia, that, that, um, that, those, those three stops. And it was an amazing time. We, all, we, we sailed out on um, the Pacific Sun, I believe it was, P&O Cruises. And, um, and we got about a day into our journey, and then the weather hit us. And it was so bad like so bad. I think there was, there was, we were in a, 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 an intense weather system that wasn't quite a cyclone, but it was pretty close. And we had inc- incredible waves rocking the ship all day. And the first day was so bad that they ran out of seasickness injections. So you might not know this, but every cruise ship has a number of injections that can be administered by the doctor on board to those that are just so sick they are running out of 
energy and fluids and things like that. And so they ran out of those day one. It was so bad that the the staff were getting sick. These are professional cruise line staff are getting sick all over the place. People are dropping like flies. Unbelievable. We got super sick as well. And And we found out day two, so we're not even to the Pacific Islands yet. Day two, the main engine of the ship breaks down. And so we're stuck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Well, it's not quite the middle. It's a big ocean. But we were stuck in the middle of what felt like the middle of the Pacific Ocean. No, no, no land anywhere. And we're running on auxiliary power alone. Two auxiliary engines limping our way. Fortunately, we, they'd saw, I feel like they might have burned out the engine escaping the weather, maybe. Whatever. Auxiliary engines making our way to the Pacific Islands. We were so late that we missed a stop. So they just couldn't pull in. They just had no way to get where all the places they wanted to go because of the time it took. And so we missed our first stop and pulled into the second one. And so my first memory or my first experience of, of being overseas anywhere, being outside of Australia, was pulling into a port at like 6 p.m. for an hour. We were only allowed out for an hour, I think, maybe an hour and a half, and I had an overpriced Corona in a pub like less than five-minute walk from the pier because we weren't allowed that far because we had to come back to get on the ship to go to the next spot. What a memory that was. But what fascinated me about this, about this journey was the number of people that were complaining about it. I, we have never experienced such an extraordinary level of entitlement in our life. We are on a, this particularly on the, on the way over, we are on a floating resort. A floating resort. There's a casino, as if that matters too much, we weren't that interested in that, but there was a big bingo event every day. They had the staff um, creating um, all these sorts of activities for us to do. They completely reshaped their itinerary so that when we couldn't pull into shore, they had a whole day's stuff planned for us on this floating resort. It's not like it was uncomfortable, but the lineup at the concierge was massive, would have been 50, 100 people. And every one of them, as you walk past the main lobby, they were shouting at this poor concierge as if they weren't as sick as everyone else, sitting there trying to, to receive the vitriol that was coming out of people's mouths as they raged about the injustice of their holiday being ruined. And I've got to tell you, That wasn't our experience. We had a wonderful honeymoon. And it didn't go as planned, for sure. We were still on the same boat. We were still sick for a whole day. But Eloise and I made a choice that we were going to enjoy it and we were going to honor the staff that were were creating whole programs for us with an hour's notice as the itinerary had to change. And whilst the story, whilst the honeymoon didn't go quite as planned, It ended up being our choice in the midst of that experience that helped determine the story we got to tell. Because I could have been able to stand up here and tell you how eloquent I was at destroying the concierge for the injustice of of the honeymoon that we had been waiting for. Because we we didn't have our honeymoon straight after we got married. I had to wait six months because of annual leave and stuff. So we've been waiting a long time for this. So I could have been able to tell you how eloquently I communicated our displeasure to a concierge. 
But instead, I get to stand up here and tell you a story about the wonderful experiences we had sitting, sipping cocktails in a speakeasy lounge, um, meeting people that we might not have otherwise met and building some relationships across the country from other people that were on the, tr- the ship. I get to tell you that story because of the choices that we made in, in, the, in those moments about what sort, of, what sort of story we wanted to be able to tell. Now, we, we didn't think about it like that initially, but what a difference those choices ended up making to the story that I get to tell in this moment in time. So why are we talking about story? Well, we are in a series at the moment called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And quite simply, we are exploring the way that good questions, asking ourselves good questions, gives us the wisdom that we need to make better decisions in our life and then ultimately live with fewer regrets. And we have already agreed that we all want to live with fewer regrets in our life. We could each love to look back on a few of our regrets and wish they had played out differently. And so where have we gone so far? Well, the foundation of Scripture of this whole series is from Proverbs 27, verse 12. And it says, The prudent see danger and they take refuge. But the simple, the foolish, they keep going and they pay the penalty. The prudent, the wise, take refuge when they see danger coming, and, but the foolish, they keep going and they pay the penalty. What does this tell us? It tells us that when we have the wisdom to look ahead into the future, we have the opportunity to make better decisions in our life and ultimately not pay the penalties that might otherwise be in store for us. And so the, this, by asking ourselves good questions, five of them over this series, we can avoid, in many ways, the folly of the foolish and not pay the penalties, but instead take refuge and have a better life overall. While I mention it, you find some rugs on the end of the pews. There's no shame. If you're cold, grab a nana rug. It's Mother's Day after all, so we're going to call them nana rugs. Grab a nana rug, wrap yourself up if you need to. There's some there. I promise you heating is coming into this building at some point in the future, so it is there if you are cold. Or, sorry, would I like one? Yes, if you, no, it's all right. I'll, I'll be animated enough up here. It should be fine. And so where have we gone so far? So we are, in the first week, I explored that idea that good questions are related to good decisions, so that, that there's a connection point there. And that ultimately, wisdom comes from us being honest with ourselves about how things really are. Because if we're not honest with ourselves, we can't, and we deceive ourselves then we can't make good choices if we don't have good information. And that we are really good at selling ourselves on things. I'm, as we discovered last week, I'm really good at selling myself on having another roll of chocolate. Doesn't take me much effort for that. And eventually, I'm really good at selling myself on finishing the block of chocolate. And that's life. But to be more serious, many of us are really good at selling ourselves on really complicated, but also really significant decisions in our life. And That salesperson in our head is the one that we are trying to overcome. And so to overcome the salesperson, we are asking ourselves that first question, the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself, really? And we ask, we add that really, because we know we we deceive ourselves, and we spin a good yarn, and we justify ourselves. 
And so we ask ourselves, am I being honest with myself, really? And so that's our first question. And so that, take, that brings me to our second question, where we're spending the rest of our time today. And it's the legacy question. What story do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? Because as I mentioned, as we look back over our life, we see a series of stories that we get to tell. We tell them to ourselves, we tell them to others. So what story do you want to tell? Do you want to be the hero? Or do you want to be the villain? Do you want to be the good example? Or do you want to be the bad example? The illustration of what? Is the right thing to do? Or the illustration that other people use of the wrong thing to do. Last week, I talked about King David. He was a man after God's own heart, yet still, there is a story within our Scriptures that we use to, to say, that's not the right thing to do. What story do you want to tell? Now, you know, the, the thing that is so significant about this question is that we don't realize that we are writing our story as we journey through our day-to-day. We don't, we, don't, we don't think about it. Most of us never lift our eyes to think about the legacy that we are leaving. We just make choices, and, and that's okay. But the whole point of this question is to lift our eyes to the legacy we are leaving behind and realize that we, the choices that we make weave themselves together and become a narrative, a story that we get to tell And so, in a way, I could summarize it to say that you and I, we write our story one decision at a time. Now, the first tension that comes to mind is one that I spoke about last week. And it's the tension about, what about the stuff in our life that's not our choice? Because we're talking about choices and, and the significance of them, decisions. What about the stuff in our life, and there's a lot of it, that is not up to us? Someone else's dumb choices have an impact on our life. And as I reflected last week, the response that you and I have is that we have the ability to still make a choice with how we respond to the stuff that happens to us in our life that we would not choose. And in fact, in some of it, we would not even invite or ask or inflict upon those that we don't like very much. We always have a choice with how to respond. So here's an example. If you're, if you're a part of a, like if you have a working life or you think back to your working life and you had a boss that asked you to do something and it was something that was borderline unethical, maybe even was unethical. It could have even been illegal in some way, but your boss asks you to do it. And you have a choice, don't you, as to how you respond in that moment in time. You can do what your boss asks you to do and then live with the risk of getting found out and potentially, you know, losing your job by being prosecuted and, and having a criminal record, perhaps. Or, of course, you can do it. Or you can not do it, I should say. So you can do it and, suffer the cons- and, and risk suffering the consequences. Or you can not do it and disobey your boss, who perhaps is going to fire you for not doing as your boss asks. Whether they're allowed to or not, it's your boss. They get to frame the narrative. 
And so you see, like a boss has asked you to do something, puts you in an awkward situation, and you have two choices. You can do it and risk all of the consequences of an illegal or unethical act, or, or you cannot do it and risk getting fired. See, it wasn't your choice to be placed in that position. But you're there anyway, and you've got a choice as to how to respond. So, friends, we've already, always got a choice. And the question ultimately becomes, which story would you rather tell? Would you rather tell that you got in fired for integrity or dishonesty? Would you rather tell the story that you were, because you might get fired anyway, regardless of your choice, impossible position. Do you want to get, you, do you want to get, you want to tell the story of being fired for your integrity or for your dishonesty? So granted, you still don't have a job, but if you think about it, take a step forward into your future, you get the opportunity to sit down and have another job interview, because you've lost your job anyway. And so you sit down at your next job interview, and what's one of the first questions, if you've ever hired people, you know this, what's the one of the first questions that you ask someone in a job interview that isn't currently employed but was recently? What do you ask them? Why'd you leave your last job? What are you going to say? You've got two choices based on the decision you made. You've got the choice that your first act in your new role is to lie about your past, because no one's going to hire someone who made an unethical choice and got prosecuted for it or whatever. So you can, you have the, you have the choice to cover it up and become a liar from the very beginning, or you have the opportunity to tell your potential new boss about the choice that you made, which displays your integrity despite the personal cost. Now, if me as a boss, if someone, if I asked them that question and they told me that story, I'd probably hire them just like that for their, their integrity alone, because integrity is everything. Think about that. What story do we want to tell? And last week we looked at a moment in Scripture where it was a what not to do. And today I want to look at a story in Scripture from about 1,800 years before Jesus, and his name was Joseph, this man. And we're going to look at a story of what, of a good example. And Joseph's story is an incredible story. It spans about five and a half chapters of Scripture, and the good news for you is we're not going to read all of it, because we'll be here a little while, and we've got a morning tea to celebrate afterwards. If you didn't know that, by the way, special morning tea organized by the team. Um, it's going to be amazing, so if you're able to stick around after the service, make sure you duck in and grab something. So I'm not going to tell you all of the story. But I'm going to summarize big chunks of it because it matters, the context of the story. So I invite you to go back and read it for yourself, because uh, I know you all read the Bible regularly. So as part of your Bible reading this week, why don't you go read Genesis 37 through to Genesis 42. Read it in your own time. Have a bit of a reflection on the significant moments of Joseph's life, because there's so much in there that we can learn. Genesis 37 through to 42. So here we go. Starting in Genesis 37, around 1800 BC, so 1800 years before Jesus, a 17-year-old boy named Joseph steps onto the pages of Scripture, and he is the 11th of 12 sons to his father, Jacob. And he finds himself in a no-win situation in the context of his family. He didn't decide it, but for some reason, his father decided to make him his favorite son. And if you, if you know Scripture, you'd know Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. I, think of, I remember doing a, vague memories of doing a, a musical or something. 
Hmm, interesting. Anyway, so, so he, he becomes the favored son. The favored son. And his ten older brothers were so jealous that they decided to kill him. Bit dramatic, but they, it's obviously pretty significant. But they lost their nerve at the last minute. And so instead of killing him, they throw him into a dry cistern because that'll teach him, and eventually he'll die by nature, and somehow that won't be their fault. That was their rationale. But then a caravan of, of uh, I think it's Midianites, come past, and they go, actually, better idea, more profitable and slightly more ethical, we'll sell him to, into slavery, and we'll get a profit out of it, and it all will be good to go. And so they do. And they take his fancy cloak, they dip it in some goat's blood, and they give it to his father, Jacob. And tell him, by the way, sorry, your favorite son was ripped apart by animals. Sorry about that. And his father, obviously Jacob, goes into a significant amount of grieving. So now in this moment in time, these ten brothers are forced to keep a secret for life. For life. They have chosen a narrative that is untrue and are forced to keep a secret. And now the chapter of their story... There is now a chapter within their story that they are either forced to skip or admit the brokenness, the tragedy, and the regretful nature of their story. And so this is something that jumped out to me from the text, and it just, I feel like I need to mention it before we move on. Don't become a liar for life. It's never worth it. Joseph's brothers made a choice that left them as liars for life before their father. And I want to tell you this morning, if you hear nothing else, don't make a choice that makes you a liar for life. Don't lock yourself into a narrative for some short-term benefit that leaves you with a narrative that you need to hold on to for the rest of your life. It's never going to be worth. Whatever you gain in the short term is never going to be worth what you are forced to carry for the rest of your life. Don't do it. Point number one, let's get back to Joseph. Pick it up in Genesis 39. There's a bit of a gap. We'll hear about his older brother and what happens to him. Then we get back to Joseph. Joseph gets picked up on an Egyptian um, auction block, a slavery auction block. And he gets sold to a military officer by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar is a significant military officer in, in, in the Egyptian nation. And so Joseph finds himself a slave, as is expected on a slave block. And he has a choice before him in a situation that, again, he didn't create. He has the choice, do I run? Do I do the bare minimum with a bad attitude? Which, to be honest, is maybe what I'd be tempted to do. If you find yourself as a slave, you do the bare minimum with a bad attitude. Because this hand sucks. And I don't like what I have the options presented, so I'll do whatever I've got. Badly, and if we're honest, many of us who find ourselves in jobs that we don't like, or we feel that we're better than the jobs that we have, or the situations that we find ourselves in, we're tempted to do the bare minimum with a bad attitude. But Joseph makes a different choice. He says, given I'm here, I'm going to give this everything I've got. And that takes us back to the tension that I mentioned None of anything that has happened to Joseph so far is his fault. And this is relatable to many of us because many of us in our lives are at the mercy of the careless, selfish, negligent, 
malicious, and let's even call it what it is, the evil choices of those around us in some way. And they hijack our story. And when we're faced with a situation, it's understandable how we throw up our hands and we give up. If you told me your story about that, and I'd be totally tempted to give you a pass and say, yeah, to be honest, that's, that's pretty bad. You um, just, yeah, I, I totally forgive you for giving up in that moment. Why keep caring? Why keep tr- striving? That's always the temptation when someone decides our story in a bad direction, but Joseph refuses to do so. He decides to serve Potiphar's house with everything he has got. He serves it as if it is his own. And eventually Potiphar notices and gives Joseph more responsibility and more responsibility and eventually places him in charge of his entire household. This is a slave in charge of Potiphar's household. And that right there is a great story to tell. If we left it there, great story. Faithful with a little, faithful with a lot, despite the garbage hand he was dealt in his life. That's a good story. Kidnapped twice. Decided not to play the victim card, but that's not the end of Joseph's story. Someone else steps into the story. We don't know her name, other than that it is Potiphar's wife. And those of you that know the story know exactly where we are headed next. Joseph finds himself once again in a no-win situation, and this time it is Potiphar's wife. She develops an attraction for 19-year-old handsome Joseph and insists on him becoming her lover. And Joseph finds himself in another moment where he has two choices. He can accept or he can refuse. And once again, he chooses the better path and refuses her. This is how he responds, in a sense. This is Potiphar. I came to this land as a slave. I had no rights. I had no future. And your husband purchased me, and I did my best to serve him and you. Through hard work and God's help, I've gained his trust. And he's put me in charge of everything in this household. We pick this up in in Genesis 39, verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. See, I didn't make that up. After a while, his master's wife took took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. I'm sure that's a summary. But he refused. And he responded this way. He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in in this house than I am. Notice that includes Potiphar's wife. Interesting. No one is greater. That's a sign of the times, but also how significantly Potiphar trusts Joseph. My master has not withheld, or has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. He's withheld nothing from me except you. You are his wife. And so Joseph has these two choices. Story one, your husband gave me an opportunity that I never dreamed would come my way, so I was faithful to him, and God's been watching out for me ever since. Or, 
Your husband gave me an opportunity that I never dreamed would come my way, so I took advantage of his trust and slept with his wife. Two choices. But he refuses. And then Joseph steps back in, and this is the, sort of the hint we get. Joseph steps back into the broader context of his life. In light of everything that's happened, and in light of his husband's, uh, in light of her husband's confidence in him, he asks this question. In verse, end of verse nine, he says, "How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God?" When we face decisions that are filled with temptation. And pressures, we've got to owe it to ourselves to ask, what story would I like to tell? Because in a sense, I feel like that's the question Joseph asked. What story am I going to tell here? Do I end this story as an adulterer who's taken advantage of his master? Or do I end my story with, as a person of integrity? So well done, Joseph. Well done for being a man of integrity. The problem is that his decision, as I mentioned, comes at a cost. Potiphar's wife gets mad at him for being rejected. She frames him. She accuses him of raping her. And the net result of, his, of this man of integrity's choice, he lands in Pharaoh's dungeon as a result. I think he's lucky to have landed in the dungeon rather than just being executed. But he was framed and lands in the dungeon for his choice of integrity. His brother can't catch a break. But that's not the end of his story. Joseph decides while he's in prison to do what he did in Potiphar's house. He does the best with what he has where he is. And he ends up gaining the favor of the prison warden and basically running the place. And several years later, the passage tells us, don't miss that, by the way. Several years later couple of things happen that are really interesting to read about in chapter 40 and 41. We're going to pick it back up in, in second half of 41. A couple, several years later. Interesting to note there that how, how often our decisions are more than just a moment. Sometimes the decisions that matter the most that help write our story are deeper than just a moment in time. Sometimes those decisions are a faithful weeks, months, or even years of integrity before our situation begins to change. Friends, second thing to notice is sometimes the faithfulness towards God, sometimes the integrity that our choices require is not just a choice, sometimes it is consistent choices over time. So the promise is not that your story will change overnight, the promise is that God sees your choice and honors you in the grandest story that matters the most. So several years later, Joseph finds himself being ushered before Pharaoh to interpret a dream that Pharaoh believed had significance over the nation of Egypt. None of his magicians could interpret the dream. And then in another surprising twist in Joseph's story, he assures Pharaoh that he cannot interpret the dream that Pharaoh has asked him to interpret. Instead, what does he say? He says, I can't do it, but my God can. A bold thing to say before someone 
who considers himself a God. Pharaoh considers, would consider himself a God, and he says, you don't know the answer to this, but my God, who's apparently better than you, knows the answer to this, this uh, dream. But Pharaoh, for some reason, is more curious than furious and invites Joseph to pr- proceed. And according to Joseph's interpretation, Egypt would experience seven years of extraordinary harvest and extraordinary produ- produce, and then seven years of extraordinary and devastating famine. So much so that it would just decimate the economy of Egypt and the surrounding nations. And so when, and when Joseph finished interpreting the dream, everybody assumed that it would be finished, he would have to be excused, but then, but Joseph wasn't finished, he does the unthinkable. And he gives Pharaoh some unsolicited advice. Nobody gives a Pharaoh unsolicited advice, especially not a foreigner who still smells like a dungeon. And what was Joseph's advice? He says, somebody needs to wake up every single day focused on preparing Egypt for what is coming. So choose somebody you trust, Pharaoh. Choose somebody and put them in charge of the grain storage. And I imagine Pharaoh saying, silence. And then everybody waited for the unimaginable horror that would be given or handed down to a man who gives Pharaoh unsolicited advice. But instead, the Pharaoh smiles, and he says in verse 37, well, this plan seems good to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone in all of Egypt like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Can we find anyone like this man anywhere that had the wisdom or even the courage to tell me what I needed to hear? And then the Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one as discerning or as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than So, Pharaoh said, here I put you in charge of the whole land, and he took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine robes of linen, put a gold chain around his neck, and had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. Basically, he makes him the prime minister of Egypt in a moment. And sure enough, the bumper crops come in. And he stores them. And then sure enough, seven years later, the famine starts. And everyone is out of food. And when the entire of that area of the world is decimated by famine, he throws open the federal storehouses of grain and feeds an entire nation. And guess who lands at his door? Asking, begging for some food. His brothers that threw him down a well. 
the ones that sold him into slavery, the ones that were liars for life. And they don't recognize their 30-year-old brother. But eventually, Joseph reveals his identity to them. And they're terrified and they beg for mercy that they do not deserve. And are unlikely, you know, every likelihood, if it were you or I, probably wouldn't receive. They were sure that Joseph would do to them what they had done to him. And here we reach the point in the story where the contrast is so vivid. Joseph is nothing like his brothers. He chose in that moment to step away from the pull of bitterness at all the unjust stuff that had happened to him in his life and decides a different story, a story worth telling. And that's why we're still telling it. That in that moment, actually it's over a series of moments in his life, Joseph consistently decides to make choices based on what story he wants to tell for the rest of his life. And I suppose then that brings it back to us. What story do you want to tell? Even amidst all the, the things in your life that have not gone the way that you wanted them to, what story do you want to tell with the years that you have left? Because none of us know, do we? The only thing certain is that I'm breathing right now. I might not even be breathing at the end of this sermon. I hope I am, let's be honest. And so do you. You hope I am too. Because <laughs> that would be... Anyway, what do we do? We ask ourselves the question, what story do I want to tell? And friends, it's Mother's Day. And we're thinking about this question of legacy. And if we're honest, for some of us, for some of you as, I'm not a mother, but for some of you as mothers, there's a whole bunch of your story that you wish looked a little different to the way that it does. And I'm sorry for that. Because part of your legacy, whether you like it or not, is some choices that you wish you had made differently. But I've got to remind you that in this moment, the legacy that we, we leave, and the story that we get to tell, isn't just defined by our choices. It also gets reframed by God's choice for us. Because as I mentioned last week, Jesus made a choice to give up his life for you and I. And by doing so, it enabled us to reframe our story, to be able to tell a different story. Not one that changes the decisions that we made, but one that reframes them as instead of being decisions that led to brokenness, they end up being decisions that are redeemed towards life. And that might not change the situation, but it certainly changes the shame and the brokenness attached to them. And so in this Mother's Day moment, I want to invite you 
to release the stuff that you wish was different about your story. Mothers, fathers, I don't care, whoever you are, the legacy that we leave, the story that we have shaped, I want you to put it before God this morning and allow God to write a great big signature written, to be honest, in Christ's blood over your story and redeem it. Because we believe that God can bring goodness out of the things that we wish were different. We see it again and again and again. And I know if you're a follower of Jesus, you have stories that you can tell of God bringing goodness out of brokenness. And so in this moment, if there's something in your life that you have yet to hand over to Him, do it today. Don't leave here without, with it held on to. Because God wants to renew God wants to bring goodness out of your story, but He will not bring goodness out of things we have yet to hand over to Him. So my question to you this morning is what story do you want to tell? Because sometimes that story is written with the, most of the time that story is written with the choices that we make. But there's also another choice that we can make in this moment that can renew and reshape our legacy to be one that we are extraordinarily proud of. So hand your legacy back into God's hands this morning, the same way Joseph did. And choose a story of life. And you might have no idea how God's going to shape it, how God is going to redeem it. Your kids aren't even here and you wish they were. Put, put that stuff in God's hands today and see what it is that he can do. And I believe that he will hand you back a story worth telling.